Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Today, I'm talking to Paul Monahan, founding director of Alfred Hall Monahan Morris. But we're not talking about his work in architecture this time, we're talking about his work at the Office for Place. The Office for Place sits within the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, and it is advised by a board of experts who are looking to drive up design standards. It's They are piloting the National Model Design Code in 20 communities, um, and their ambition is to empower local authorities to demand beauty, design quality, and placemaking. So let's tune in. Hi, Paul. So okay. welcome to the Developer Podcast. It's good to be here Hi, with Christine. you again. <laughs> Hi, Christine. Um, How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I wanted to, I, we'll just kick off right off the bat. I mean, I've spoken to you many times in your, um, you know, position as a, as a founding director of HMM, but we're talking today about some very different work you've been doing with the government. Can you tell me a little bit about your engagement with the Office for Place and when that started and where it comes from? Yeah, well, it, it began about four or five years ago where I was, um, I became part of the Building Beautiful, Building Better Commission. Um, and over a year, that period, we we put together a document called Living with Beauty. Um, I think a lot of our industry and the construction team was a bit cynical about the group. But actually, I think the document that came out, everyone was was well received by both architects, contractors, planners. And it, I, I'd imagine it would be because they had fantastic people in the group who were highly experienced. Um, and, you know, there were great, um, I suppose, great pieces about planning, about stewardship, about regeneration, about educating. And, I, and, and what happened after that, it turned into the Office for Place, which, again, I'm at a, on the advisory board with with a varied uh, number of people who are who are in different areas of construction and design and i suppose really what what the premise is if you if you if you like the beginning of this is okay number one we're not building enough houses for people so you can disagree or agree about that but we we never have ever i don't think number two that planning is perhaps um takes too long in certain circumstances and therefore is very risky for developers and that risk seems to be priced so that it makes things more unaffordable so i think those are the two premises the how the the, the office of place is how do we help move that and i think the third thing is the quality of design of an awful lot of housing schemes um are, are not adequate and um in particular, I'd say things like the placemaking, um, landscape treatments are, you know, often very poor in these schemes. And so I suppose those are the three things. And what Office of Place is trying to do, it's promoting and helping um, run national model design codes around the country with 25 local authorities. We're doing research papers on thing called provenly popular which is whether or not there are things that are more popular than other things. And I suppose, um, finally, we're trying to um, start to look at, uh, there is an idea about beauty or good design, whichever you want to call it. And um, 
So I think that's a central part of it. And and the final part really is a belief in talking to people about developments in their area from a very early stage rather than when you've designed it. So I suppose those are the rough beginnings of it. And I, you know, I've, I've tried to contribute to those and um, uh, help with my experience on things because there's only myself and Robert Adam are the only two architects on it. So we both have very different takes, but um, experiences which are, are very helpful, I think, to the group. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting is that it is you and Robert Adam, if you will, a traditionalist and a modernist, those two um, kind of famous, I mean, almost set up as dichotomy, this, you know, this long standing sense of a rivalry between two, um, you know, two schools of thought uh, in architecture. Is that relevant anymore, that idea that, you know, the the modernists and the traditionalists are competing um, for, you know, one true expression of beauty? Um, sorry, in terms of Robert and I, we're both pluralists, actually, although Robert does what he does. He's not um, emphatic about everything being the way he does. I'm just like, well, I'm the same. I'd like to think, I think when Robert's experience comes in is he's very immersed in doing lots of design codes and in working in towns that have a, a sensitive um, background so that whereas I suppose a lot of our work is more in the middle of cities um, which are sensitive but in a different manner um, yeah there is a sort of slight you know is traditional architecture the thing that everyone would love to have next to them um, but uh, it's I, I, I think people it's very hard to put your finger on what people enjoy I think people enjoy different things so I'm, I'm I um, I certainly don't. Sorry, I don't have any problem if people want to do traditional architecture. If that's you know, it's I think there's enough space for everyone. It's not always the answer. Just like contemporary architecture isn't always the answer. And I think there was a lot, as you mentioned, uh, around the Building Beautiful report. A lot of people trying to turn this into an idea that when people meant beauty they meant traditional or they meant some kind of um, pastiche historical. But actually when the report came out, it wasn't really about that at all. It was about placemaking a lot of it and the spaces between um, and, you know, and this idea of how do you define beauty and beauty being defined very much in a local context. So uh, how, how is that understanding of beauty through your discussions about it, through that process of that report and now into the office of place, how has that definition of beauty um, changed and, you know, or, or how is it evolving? And, you know, what does it mean to someone who's just, you know, learning that there is this discussion about what is, um, you know, an accepted or provenly popular definition of, of beauty? Do you have a sense of what that is? Uh, no. And I think one of the things that you realize in these um committees and advisory groups is um, particularly with government is there are varying views and while in my own firm I'm used to getting my own way most of the time in this group you don't I can assure you and there are things that you agree more with and things that you don't agree with um, uh, for beauty I, I in my mind I always read good design I'm, I'm never particularly comfortable with beauty but I others are but equally, I think it's interesting that a government should use it so much because beauty does seem to be something that um, I, 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 I suppose the idea of, a, of, of enhancement is, is, is a good thing. And I, I'm not sure people would ask for ugly either. So 
in a way, I, do, I think it's a question of semantics, but it, it is a cure. You know, if we go back to Vitruvius's, you know, firmness, commodity, and delight, it's linked with that too, isn't it? It's it's all the same. It's just a different way of saying it. I think it. Um, but I don't. What I don't agree with, and and certainly in my experience of being in these groups for several years, is there is any link with beauty and traditional architecture. I don't think that is a, a hidden message behind it it is quite open um so but I, it's not always helpful it's not the bit i'm most comfortable with. i would sooner have well-designed buildings or something more probably more bland but i i um, um but equally there are other parts of the, the thing that i really agree with um you sent me or, or you shared with me a, a letter um by michael gove who um sent it out encouraging councils to uh to bring design expertise back into planning communities in or planning count, uh, councils sorry into local councils to prepare for these design code changes and um the creation of of local design codes i mean that feels like a big change for um you know a man who once said that he didn't want architects to design you know the schools or that kind of controversy around bsf and this idea that design was a an expense um, and now seems to be coming back into councils. I mean, that must be hugely welcome to your mind. Well, I think one of the things that has changed over the last few years um, is um, we have different people in in the um, DLUC, the, the Department for Leveling Up. We have Joanna Averley, who's chief planner. We have Sarah Allen, who's the government's chief architect, who are um, very design-led people. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do with obviously my business partner Simon Olford is president of the RBA is, is is sort of make the RBA and governments um, have a better relationship it, it seemed to me over the years that often the, um, there would be um, comments made about any policy that's highlighted and that's not incredibly helpful for our profession's relationship with government which should have a better one um, yeah, I think it's great that, you know, in Michael Gove's letter, he's talking about well-designed places, he's talking about design codes being a methodology for doing, for helping local authorities doing that, talking about sustainability. Um, I mean, I think at the heart of it is placemaking, or, and I think that's where everyone everyone is in agreement that that's the, the thing that seems to be going wrong in so many of these sort of anonymous housing schemes get built on the edges of towns and villages everywhere. And um, how do we how do we make that better? So, yeah. One of the uh, things that um, is mentioned uh, is that there may be uh, amendments later on or consultation on on secondary legislation around permitted development rights and I think there are a lot of of projects that we would describe as as ugly or or maybe um, badly designed maybe is more fair uh, when it comes to conversions you know office to residential conversions um, and some of the things that are just um, you know permitted uh, and not actually um, go through the planning process. So, just for anyone who doesn't know, if you if it's under permitted development right, you you don't need to have the design you know checked um, or approved. 
So I guess, is that a frustration um, or is that being taken seriously? Because there, it seems like there could be two contrary ambitions. One is de-risking planning and maybe speeding it up. And the other is not circumventing it entirely so that you have poor design um, being permitted uh, without any checks. Yeah, I think permitted development is tricky. It's very attractive, I think, to government because of the speed it can happen. I mean, there were things like adding a floor onto buildings that, you know, that, or blocks of flats that can get permitted development to add a floor on. There's another element about street votes, which is if you're a whole neighbourhood vote, it's okay to put a floor on top of a building, you can do it. You know, the whole street can do it. And I, I'm always a bit, you know, that all of these things could be done well, and there's no question densifying um, our, our cities is, is one way but I think in the end the amount of additional homes that are created by that are just nothing like the, the number of homes we need so in a way it's a distraction the, being, the main problem is why we are not producing enough good housing or enough housing and why so much of it seems to be poorly designed and, and, and actually you know so little of it is designed with architects and landscape architects, it's it's pattern book housing um, that is very rarely changed over the years. So, how will this work of the office for place change that pattern book housing? Well, I think they're asking number one, aren't they? They're saying demand beauty or better designed buildings from local to try and turn down things that aren't. Yeah, that's that's. Fine in central London, I don't know, outside the suburbs of a town that's quite deprived is when you need housing is is much harder, but you know, I think that should happen. So I think um I think the design codes allow local authorities to look at some of their sites and sites where housing that they either own or could control to plan for the future and not allow piecemeal development to think about a master plan, a regeneration area. And I think that is a better way, you know, to beginning with one of the first steps to trying to create a vision for a place. And I think the third thing is really challenging the industry to do better. We've got a unique moment because we've got to fight this is the climate crisis somehow. We've got to deal with it. And housing is clearly one of the parts of that. So there's going to have to be a revolution in that anyway. So why can't we at the same time stop giving everyone the same thing, whether or not it be in Cambridge, Burnley or Huddersfield and all the housing looking the same? Why can't we? And I think um, that's what we need and that's what they're trying to encourage. So through design codes, through consultation and engagement early on and through trying to say it's okay to turn something down if you think it's an ugly or that the design is of a poor quality. The scrapping of the housing targets, that, that supports that ability to turn down. Is that right? Because it, formerly they would have had to accept those developments to achieve their targets? Yeah, I think there was, there, there was uh, something a few years ago where each local authority was meant to get to targets. And, and I don't think that um, didn't prove to be very popular at all. Um, I think focusing on the number isn't as healthy, I think, in the end. What's more important is is is, is on the quality and, and um, recognizing that. So I don't, 
you know, I don't, I, 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 I can see how if that's the most important thing is building them, how it could end up being building them of poor quality. So what we want is how do we get start to get better quality housing in all the developments around the country. So tell me a bit about these pilot communities. There are 20 communities that are piloting the National Model Design Code, and those local authorities are, it's, you know, it says here they've been empowered to demand beauty and design quality. What stage are those pilot projects at, and what's, what's happening there? They're about halfway through, so we've got, I think it's 25, so it's 20 local authorities. I think there's five neighbourhood um, uh, neighborhood forums who've, who've also applied for the money. And they all get, they're all being paid an amount of money, and it's a one-year exercise. Um, and what, the, what they had to do to apply for it was to identify part of their town or city or village. And what we have is a huge variety of projects from, you know, um, you know very small parts of a, of a village to a huge area within, um, you know, a sort of national park. So I think... They're going through that at the moment, um, and they're effectively going to be doing design codes. And, it, and what we'll see is a variety of design, how they work at a small area and how they, they work on a macro area. We have the Design Council have come in to do design reviews um, twice during each of them, and then the, the results will be published, I think, at the end of, probably the end of um, August around there. So they're all on the way and seem to be going really well. We did a another pilot project last year um, where they also went well, but we learned a lot from that. Which one of the main things was giving them more time. So they've all got to try and do design codes, do proper engagement, um, doing engagement digitally as well as in real life. So and yeah, so far I've, I've been monitoring several of them from a neighbourhood forum group in London to Barking Council who are doing one. So it's um, it's been really interesting. The quality of the thinking and working has been fantastic. For someone who might not know what is a design code or what is in a design code, can you kind of explain, you know, what the parameters are, how specific they are and um, and how, you know, future development would interact with it? Well, I think to to those architects who are used to doing master plans, working on bigger schemes, there's not really that much that's new to them. Um, what it what it tries to be is a pattern book where you can uh, a local authority who've never done one before could use the document, which is you know a reasonably thick document with lots of clues in. It's very visual, so there's lots of drawings, but effectively it goes through about ten points: context, movements, nature built form, identity, public space, uses, homes and buildings, resources, which is sustainability, lifespan. So it, and each of those, so each of those elements is uh, what you would have in a design code. And it would identify from, you know, quite landscape driven, but also quite height driven. So it would be identifying the heights of buildings, where you might have landmark buildings, uh, where you might have public realm, where we'd have roads and not roads. And, and it would highlight dimensions that are quite key to that and heights that are quite key. So in a way, you know, in a smaller one, you, you would identify things like, you know, you might want a porch in front of a house or you might want a pitched roof or you might want this brick. So in a way, they're trying to give 
they're a bridge between full planning permission and a local plan, where a local plan is just colours on a chart on the whole, saying work, living, and they take it one step further and try and introduce, I suppose, some more strategic thinking about a whole area. And that speeds up planning because once it's submitted, it's much closer to what the planning authority would want? I, th I think what it, sorry, I think it's hoping to speed up planning. I didn't say it was going to speed up planning. I think it's the idea is that if the local authority does that study, then a developer starts to work on it. There has been work done on that site already. And there is the principle of, I don't know, housing with some mixed use and shopping at the bottom that is already established and some heights that are established. That de-risks it for developers. Of course, any developer is going to want to challenge that a bit more, but there's something there from the beginning. What holds up, you know, so many developments we do, we can take, we can spend a year before we even get to a point that we can agree any heights or any, you know, uses in some curtain or that. And I think that's what really, and that's priced by a developer or a builder, whoever it is. It's all, it all adds on and, and changes the viability of things. So I think that's the hope. Um, I think the other thing is it's making site local authorities think about getting sites up and ready for development so they can build more housing. So, you know, that, that going through that exercise of saying, where are we going to put more homes? And if we put them there, what other things do we need next to them? And what infrastructure do we need in place there? So that exercise being useful of itself. In terms of why it might um, not speed up planning, that's because you're, you, you still, as a developer, might say, actually, I want to put more homes in that area than is in the local plan, or I might want to, you know, I, I need to put you know, these other provisions here to make it attractive. So you might still end up with a conversation, but it's a different conversation. Everyone needs the project to be viable. You know, it doesn't matter if you're doing a back extension. You want to make sure you don't spend enough, so much money that your house isn't worth the extra amount, you know. So everyone needs to make it viable. Um, but I, 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 I think everyone wants things slightly de-risked. And to be honest, particularly in times like this where, I don't know, we might be in choppy waters, we might not be, but I think it's, you know, that risk is, is huge. So to me, that's quite key. But I think I think the other thing to recognise is, because one of the things we did talk about was, you know, there is a difference with different developers. So there's um, different house builders, there's different reputations they have, just like there's different architects and landscaping have really design-led um, records or, or not. And um, I think often that goes down to stewardship. And, you know, there's, there's a whole set of house builders, and I'm not using that word house builders pejoratively, which I think it too often is. That's what, that's what they do do. Build, sell, go. That's it. Not interested. You know, the public realms, whatever they left it, they'll do as much, you know. And then there's other developers who are doing bigger schemes, who build, sell, and then steward it for, you know, to look after it for, for whenever. So I think that's the fundamental difference. And the people who are stewards of it and look after it, on the whole, create better places. Now, quite often that's mixed, more mixed developers. You know, I look at things like Television Centre that we did, where it is completely um, looked after by, in that case, Broadgate Estates. So it's sort of, you know, it's, it's going to be there forever, that, that stewardship. 
Um, so I think that's the other thing that we recognized, that, that so there are different qualities of the way people do it. So some developers see it as just a you know, way of getting cash, and other developers see it as creating a community for life. And um, uh, like all these things, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of different ways in between it. But we, what would be great is everyone cared about the places they're building, thought about places and communities rather than just every them, them being bits of monopoly houses on a board making money. The placemaking aspects of um, of the work that you're you're doing at in terms of the code, are they um, are there certain ideas around? I mean, you know, uh, Paris has famously talked about the fifteen minute city. Are there certain ideas about walkability or cycling or car use or rail infrastructure that are are coming down from that national model design code, or is that very much up to the area? I'm just thinking in the context of the environmental. Are there kind of I don't know uh, suggested yeah. agendas around the future of, uh, of of transport and green space and and those um, those kinds of things. Uh, definitely. I mean, we have a great guy, Andy Cameron, who's on our group, who's traffic engineer. Um, I think what there is is massive recognition of the problem with placemaking mixed with developments that need, say, I don't know, two to three cars per house. Um, obviously, cycling has improved um, and walking is improved. But one has to be realistic. Um if you live a long way away from any public transport and there's two of you in the family work in different directions, you, the, the car is going to stay. And we hope the car, the car's obviously getting greener. The problem we have with our, with, 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 with sort of those sort of developments is they overrun by cars so that the, the placemaking is in real conflict. But we also find things like the bin stores are in, you know, the poor developments, um, throw in bin stores wherever they can. They they have the fuse boards on the front door, you know, a big black box sticking out. And it's often all of that that actually really destroys the placemaking. But in terms of promoting, I think, you know, there are places like Cambridge you go to now, and it's just incredible. The, the Sorry, there are also massive traffic jams always there, but there's also massive amounts of bike riding, and all of those developments are so friendly for, for that. But I think all new developments will. I think we have to think about what happens when the car does change? You know, maybe everyone only has one car and it's an electric car and it shall, they shall have car clubs so that we can get that space back and we don't have to have this double drive. Obviously not a problem in London because there's hardly any car parking spaces to, that the people can have in a planning permission. But, um, but it, it's also about sustainability and how we keep pushing that agenda within new housing schemes. At the moment, my experience is sustainability is being pushed much more in the office world, commercial world, than in housing. In the office world, they want to be pioneering and ahead of the ball, ball game. In housing, they just want to get over the line for planning. And so how do we start to push that? How do people have bigger ambitions? And I, I think that might not happen till people, if they have a choice of two houses, they would either pay more or want a sustainable house more than another one. And at the moment, I just don't, in the end, price is everything with people and location. So we haven't quite got to that point where to change the market. 
in office buildings we have in office buildings people people will pay more rent for a highly sustainable building so that's what but that but it will come with housing because of the generation now you know if i look at my children are so passionate more passionate than even the people in my office are about sustainability because it's the you know much more their future as well so yeah i think but i would you know, I involve myself with things when you are looking. Are you seriously saying it's three car parking spaces? And it's not the developers asking for it, it's the planners asking for it. And the energy prices um, and the petrol prices have certainly, you know, increased the amount of writing around ideas of energy efficiency um, and, uh, you know, ideas of even overheating came up over the summer with the kind of temperatures and water usage. So there is a lot more awareness around the kind of personal impact that, um, that, that, uh, you know, overheating or a cold home or the cost of, you know, living can be, can be hit by. Is there anything in the model design code that, that changes um, the energy efficiency of these homes or ideas around, um, you know, the carbon? It, I know that it has notes about it being in line with the net zero ambitions of the country, but how, you know, I guess prescriptive, um, you know, are these and, and would you like to see more, um, you know, design codes or um, regulations that are in raising the bar for that level of um, energy efficiency? Well, uh, in, in the end, we, of course, we need more, whether the design codes need to highlight it, but regulation probably needs to highlight it. But in the design codes, the whole resources section has stuff about energy hierarchy. So gas versus electric versus everything else. Energy efficiency has uh, neighborhood energy. So whether or not you have uh, elements there, embodied energy about, you know, from um, looking at new build, looking at, uh, modern methods of construction and water, which is the other key element. So, I I, I think they're highlighted there, but I think it's for um, you know in a way that's for regulation to 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 agree with things. What I do believe is the you know clearly we're going to be in a period where some form of inventions in terms of materials are going to allow us to get to this carbon zero and even perhaps in the future, get to carbon positive. It's not possible quite, yeah, well, it is, but it's hard at the moment. How, you know, and where, and it's going to be innovations in material. You know, I think you probably see there's uh, much greener forms of concrete being invented now and used, bricks the same. So how do we, you know, and that's a challenge for the construction industry, not architecture in the construction. I think there's great opportunities there. For, for us to create these great new green buildings. I was uh, reading about this kind of, um, it, you know, this almost like this this confidence <coughs> in refusing ugly. And I was thinking about Amin Taha's office in London and the big debate about whether it was ugly or n not ugly and whether it, it should be demolished because of the use of the raw stone facade, which, of course, was justified as being green because it was un processed and and I was saying you know this confidence sounds really really good to kind of be able to speak up for design but then will it you know will it end up that there are you know more arguments about the definition of ugliness the definition of beauty you know could this be you know kind of um 
lighting the flames of of more kind of pointless debates that really um, you know, got the got the architecture community um, really concerned about aesthetics in a way that m- maybe even prevents uh, some innovation uh, coming through. So I don't I don't know if you have any views about that that debate. No, and maybe no, you I guys agree. are having that debate around the table at the office for place. So you'll save the rest of us from it. But no, we do we do, we do. But um, I'll tell you one thing: I've come to understand in the last four or five years, um, being involved with people who aren't just architects and designers, is is there is, you know, there is there are different perceptions about our profession and what is good design and bad design and and also how we talk about it as architects. Quite often we we don't talk about it in a clear way or we talk about it talk about the building first and not say the place first you know i think um and i've realized that you know sometimes the language we use and i suppose i've always been probably because i'm from liverpool Liverpool, quite straightforward about way of talk but over the years you do you you see that so sometimes it is about communication i think the beauty thing as i said i i um i think there's, there's an interesting piece of research going on now which the bartler and ipsos are doing on provenly popular so that's another one of the centerpieces um which is are the things that people like more say for example up brick you know do you so that if you're if, if someone was building next to your house christy a building that was twice as high as it if it was in a certain brick would you find that would would your neighbors all find that actually that's not bad at all we're all quite happy so are the now the next one is it or is it about pitched roof or is it about a porch or is it about the window proportion? And it's quite a complex study they're doing. A lot of it is about photographs, comparisons, and choices, visual choices. I'm I have my doubts about it, but I'm fascinated. It's gonna you know I'm the people who are doing it are gonna bring real rigor to it. So it'll be interesting to see if something comes out. So are the are there these universal sort of elements of beauty that people enjoy i'll tell you what if we do every every architect in the country will want to get on the bandwagon but i think it's i think um but it, it will be interesting to see what comes out of it and i'm so is is are, taste educated you know is t- taste kind of educated and taught to us or is there some kind of you know innate programming of things that everyone you know does or is it local specific is it depend on what street you grew up and yeah. nostalgia yeah, and are we are we as architects being in this profession? But you know, of course, we have rarefied tastes. Most of all, you know, the house builders who build the same old house named after sort of World War One colonels, um, of building the same thing for ten years, will say, "Well, this is what people want," and and were like, "Well, why do they want that?" And is it because that's the only choice, etc.? And you get into those circular arguments about will you being rarefied? But I, I think I don't generally think that's people want. I think people don't quite know what they want. You know, I think um, if you look at television programs like Grand Designs, you know, it's been going on such a long time now. I think that completely changed people's views of their home and what could be achieved. You know, often unattainable. But then also, you know, you see things like the George Clark programs where he's, you know, 
even a shed people will do design is important and i so i think i think it's going to be very hard to see but i could see how say for example people don't like concrete and they might like brick but i think we might have known that in the first place so it, I'm, I'm i'm fascinated by by that and um i'm also fascinated by trying to push co-creation consultation and 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 digital versions of that into an earlier version of the process because i always say i think i've been co-creating since we began you know our clients our consultants the other architects who work with in the office that's always co-creating that's it and and um anyway you can get ideas you'll get ideas and you'll bring them ahead and but too often where where that is brought into the process too late on people feel like you know the whole process has been hijacked and 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 naturally then are very resistant to 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 things happening in the neighborhood so maybe if we get going earlier or try but there are lots of reasons why that doesn't always happen and that language that language uh, barrier as you said between the way the way the profession talks or maybe its expectations or what it sees as a natural starting point might be completely different um, to to that community. But I think we just did an issue on um, on co-creation, co-design and community-led um, uh, design and, and development. And one of the interesting exercises which um, Archeo suggested was around hopes and dreams and really getting away from any language of, of context or design code and kind of just saying to people, what are your hopes and dreams for your, you know, neighborhood and what are your fears you know what are you like what actually and you're kind of getting at those those bits like you said maybe people don't know what they want in terms of designs but they might know what they like when they see it and they also might know what they don't like or what they don't want or what they're afraid of happening you know like some people are afraid that they won't have anywhere to park their car (laughs) or they won't be able to get to work you'll stop me getting you know to work yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and and i suppose um yeah i i I always think people, we're working for a client at the moment where um, we were tr- suggesting quite a colourful interior. And they said, oh, I, we, we, we'd spent some time on this and I hate colour. And I was like, okay, brilliant. They said, I like timber and I like white. So um, it was, it's more helpful. Um, uh, so I find, but I also find in these, you know, when we do do um, some forms of engagement, you do get ideas of people, but not necessarily sure if they're co-designing, but they're sort of being like a client. They're briefing you. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, I find it really, to me, I really enjoy it. And um, I always remember one of the people who's best at this, um, whose poor old thing's not around anymore, was Will also. He could sit in a room and do a big painting with people and say, what would you like here? He was amazing at it. And um, he had a great way of breaking people down where they went shy they they would be able to talk to him because he's you know he's obviously such a great communicator but um he but he literally would sit there and draw draw a site plan with them all and uh, with big these big paintbrushes so amazing to see and he was um very uh you know delighted by people you know delighted yeah. by the ideas they had delighted by you know kind of yeah people talking and it was a real kind of created a kind of friendly atmosphere around him and sometimes the even with grand designs often you know there's this uh sense that the there's something there is like a a more formal relationship with the designer that's presented 
it or with the architect. You know, there's this idea that um, that that there is um, that it's not collaborative. That there is kind of a visionary somewhere and, and who's interpreting, um, which is kind of different to you know. Oh yeah, should we do this here? Or should we do that there? And, but it, but but I suppose. Um... Being collaborative and coherent doesn't mean to say you can't have really strong ideas. I, I, I always think as not the hardest thing is we have to listen to loads of people, but also the process is so complex and full of constraints that if you don't have a strong vision, you can just end up with a bland product at the end. So, but it's often how you. It's also not fighting the wrong the, the wrong battles with people. What you've got to try and do is is understand what's important to you, explain it to them. But allow that 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 concept to evolve with people's opinions in it. But I, yeah, I can, I, I, I think you can still have really strong concepts in it, and and let a lot of people be involved with it. I was at a conference the other day, and I was talking about one of the greatest things about engagement is that people feel part of the thing when it's built. And I use the example, you know, when I, you know, I first started putting now. But there's a building we've finished, and I go past it. I'm very proud of it. My kids always tell me off because I always drive the car past all the buildings that we've done, in, and they tell it they are bored stiff with it. But it makes me feel very proud. There's if you've been a someone who supplied the roof tiles, I know over the years the people who supplied the cladding for Westminster Academy, the colours, feel incredibly proud as we go on. So when you're you forget there's a member of public. If you've been involved with workshops over the years and then you see it built, it's the same feeling that you felt part of it. So it makes people feel part of it. So I'm really, the thing I totally agree with with everything I'm doing is about co-creation, co-designing, consultation early on. And I, I think it's such a, you know, if, if, if all schemes were able to do that, it'd be great. And it's worth remembering quite a lot of local authorities won't let you do that until they've agreed what, what the scheme is. So through these changes, will that be more encoded in that they have to go to the community on an earlier basis? Well, it's, I suppose it's, it's going to be in some of the MPPF, you know, the planning framework documents. But, you know, it, government can demand it. Not every local authority will follow the same manner. And some local authorities are fantastic at um, engagement. So, yeah. Do you think that with this kind of um, <clears throat> this new, you know, ambition, that councils will get some additional funding to deliver these changes? You know, are you concerned about their kind of strained departments and staffing issues, um, and that that is kind of a barrier to to innovation for them? Yeah, you're quite right. There is a slight conflict with saying, can you all do design codes? And who am I going to get to do them? And how do I have the resources? And I think there's massive recognition that the planning authorities are, are under-resourced. Um, I don't know if, if, if that is something that um, in the coming months that will be, you know, obviously these pilot projects are testing how, how much they should cost, how easy are they to do, are they to these external resource. But I I I um I think that there are things like public practice, which I think 
are great ways for local authority to inject in, into maybe an under-resourced department some design and planning expertise. And I know, again, it was highlighted in Living With Beauty that the idea that we could have more of them. The Living With Beauty identified the idea of having a chief architect or chief planner, you know, that was design-led in every, you know, like that often they have in, I think, in Copenhagen, there's the city. You know, I am Liverpool city region design champion myself but it's sort of it could every city have you know someone who's design led or placemaking lead so i think those things will help but now in terms of is more money going to be go that's way beyond my pay grade i'm afraid christine i've no idea but it is an issue well, finally, I just wanted to ask, you know, when you look back on this on this work that you, you've done, you know, you talked about driving past your buildings in the future. What do you hope uh, the, that, you know, you can't drive past the office for a place, I imagine, but, you know, what, if you kind of look back on this process, what what is your best hope for what it um, will have delivered? I, I, I'd hope that it puts, that, we get better designed housing schemes around the country. I, I, I honestly think if that if if we all focused on better roads, better streets, more trees in the streets, less cars, good quality materials and pavements rather than tarmac everywhere, that even if the buildings were less well designed, we'd have much better places. So focusing on places is where I think we will end up getting more to the future focusing on everything will probably never happen but i think getting better places will work and as an architect and a landscape it's quite easy that but it's often the thing that is taken out of the scheme late on in the process because of you know viability etc so i think that's what i'd hope and i'd also hope there is encouragement everywhere not just in the middle of london where it's a big scheme that people talk to the neighborhood earlier on um, and, of course, it's not going to be everyone's going to enjoy and like what happens, but there is respect then about that neighbourhood. And who knows, out of that, I'd often thought you'd, get, you'd probably get better places and places that land better, people feel part of. The spaces between the buildings. That's what this is all about. Thanks so much for talking to me about it today, Paul. You're very welcome. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for listening to The Developer Podcast, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. If you like what we do, please don't forget to subscribe to the show, and you can also support us on Patreon or as an organization member. Thanks to our organization members, Argent Related Argent, BDP, Broad Oak, Civic Engineers, Commonplace, David Chipperfield Architects, EPR, Fathom Architects, Homes England, Hawkins Brown, Stolen Studio, HDA Design, Lansac, LDA Design, Lenlease, Located, LUC, Make, Muse Developments, Poplar Haka, London Borough of Brent, Urban and Civic, Quintain, Solver Studio, Stride to Ground, Sustrans, Tibbles, Vestra, Whitam Cox, Alfred Hall, Monaghan Morris, Borough Happold, and RHP.